You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, this is Abraham. Uh, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I will be your host. And I'm your co-host, Ryan O. And today is a very special day. We have a guest with us, Dr. Lynn Green. Yeah, thank you. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. And uh, so if we could just start, tell us um, just who you are, what you do. Okay, well, I'm on faculty at Washington University in St. Louis. Um, been there a long time had planned to only be there for two years, but <laughs> they made it incredibly hospitable. Uh, born in New York, spent my whole academic career until St. Louis in New York. Undergraduate, graduate was all in New York. Then moved west to the Mississippi and uh, have been at, has, I've been at WashU since 75, 76. And uh, can you sort of describe the field that you got into and what you found appealing about it and that sort of thing? Yeah, I, um, I mean, I, I did my graduate work at State University of New York at Stony Brook with Howard Racklin. Um, he did his graduate work with uh, Smitty Stevens and Dick Kernstein at Harvard. Um, and so I went there and did my graduate studies with him with no major particular focus in mind, other than I really was enamored by the behavioral approach. It's, it was, at the time, it incredibly exciting, new phenomena being discovered, um, different way of thinking about things, a different way of approaching things. And um, even though I didn't want to do any clinical work. That is working sort of one-on-one -on -one with people in a setting where um, it's directly helping them with their problems and um, and addressing concerns uh, with individual people, but rather working in sort of a laboratory that's more experimental and sort of scientific. What I liked was being part of a discipline where you can do science, but others could take it and, and actually help people, which I don't do, but uh, nice to be part of a discipline that actually cares about about people so I working with Racklin on a number of different issues and um, while there we had a postdoc um, at the department um, from down under and he was interested in behavioral economics and he was doing work at a mental institution with backward schizophrenics and, and at that time, we had token economies that were very famous. Um, and he actually said, well, wait a second. If it's a token economy, it's really, let's look at the economics of it. And so he was looking at the economics of token economies. If you change prices, how did the behavior change? If you change income, how did the distribution of behavior change? And then an, uh, an economist from Texas came up and gave a talk because he was doing collaborative research with Robin, the postdoc. And um, so he presented some work. And then we spoke with this economist and said, well, gee, some of the things you're doing, you could do with a rat. I mean, it's, it's basic choice behavior. And he, I don't know if this says something good or bad about him, rather than dismissing us and saying how ridiculous that was, he said, really, let's do that. <laughs> and so we did uh, our first, what I would call the first experimental economic study with rats, where we looked at their choices between different commodities, such as food and water. And uh, more interesting from our point of view was Tom Collins mix and root beer. <laughs> That's great. Uh, and we varied the prices of each, and we varied the income, and we did negative income tax programs, and we did income compensated price changes, and found that the rats, and then other work with pigeons, were conforming to standard basic economic laws and principles. The reason it became behavioral economics is 
because sometimes they didn't behave the way economists would say. Um, and you had to take in psychological principles or psychological phenomena. And, and so that sort of got my interest in behavioral economics, sort of conjoining economic theory with behavioral principles and doing it from a real laboratory experimental basis where you can tr control the variables, you can control the environment, manipulate things, see how the behavior changes, and in fact see under what circumstances it conforms to, say, normative economic theory and under what situations and what conditions it doesn't conform. And then what are the psychological principles that help explain the cases where it doesn't conform? That's super interesting. I mean, uh, so I, just to expand on that a little further, what are some of the things that you discovered inside of that that were um, that kind of continued to drive you through that that love that kind of field that research and and the questions there. Well, I, uh, I I'd like to say it was pure science, but <laughs> um, I think it was just a lot of fun. I mean, for example, we did a series of studies with pigeon uh, on what's referred to as negative income tax, where um, you can respond and earn a certain amount of money and put in a certain amount of work and you earn uh, your, your income. And then what we can do is we can now require that you, um, con you can continue to work but we'll now give you a guaranteed income. Um, but when you work, we'll tax that. So if you work, you can still earn more but you have a guarantee. And there was a major uh, social welfare program on uh, negative income tax that was being pushed. And so here we were actually doing this test with Pigeon. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, you, you couldn't really do a major experimental test with humans. It would be difficult. Um, yeah, expensive. <laughs> and, yeah. Well, and very expensive. You can do it with pigeon. Now, you might argue, but yes, but if the, if the pigeon responds in a certain way, do you really want to base economic policy, social policy on your <laughs> pigeon results? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, yes. and in fact, I would argue seriously that the principles underlying it are basic principles. Mm -hmm, sure. The pigeon should conform to those basic principles just like humans, just like rats, just like other organisms. Um, now, th and then you could look at other variables that may be specific to one species or another, but yeah. you can see what needs to be added in. The, the less serious answer would be, well, given how well social policy implementation has served us over the decades, I'm not sure we do worse. <laughs> yeah. That's a good answer. Reminds uh, me a little of uh, Project, what was it, Orcon or Project Pigeon? where Pigeon and a pelican? Yep, yep, right. that was Skinner, it. Right. Yeah, 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 same idea. Of, like the, the data was there, was my understanding. Yeah. However, uh, you know, there was some people questioning whether or not... Um, I guess the do you want to do you right. do you want to summarize that where where a pigeon would be placed in the head of a missile the <laughs> was called the pelican and the pigeon was trained to peck you know say a left key or a right key to mm -hmm. keep the missile on target so if it veered to the left you'd peck the left key to move it to the right if mm -hmm. it veered to the and this was done um, I mean not with the real missile but the yeah. pigeon in the laboratory. Mm -hmm. And Skinner reported that it was incredibly um, uh, accurate. Yeah, accurate. Um, and of course, um, the missiles at the time weren't uh, that accurate. Yeah, yeah exactly. World War II. Um, and so, if you then could put a pigeon in the Pelican, in the the, the missile head, and guide the missile, mm -hmm. that in fact, when you think about it, it'll save so many lives it won't it's less likely to go off target and hit uh civilians yeah because it's, it's the... much better directed and and yes you'll lose a few pigeons in the in the uh, in the implementation which i mean i don't want to say that's fine but mm -hmm. but yes i would prefer to lose a few pigeons than slaughtering 
children and, and non-combatants. Yeah, because at the time, it was uh, the standard practice, my understanding, was just carpet bombing, yeah. and Drop they were completely yeah. Drop completely them everywhere they might be. Yeah. I must tell you what, the, the real reason I think that uh -huh. they didn't do it is because then, after we won the war, oh, um, <laughs> they would have had to build a statue to a pigeon. <laughs> I mean, that just doesn't look good. And then besides, you know, who's going to shit all over it? <laughs> you know, I, I think that's really what the army decided yeah, not yeah. to do. They gave other reasons, but I'm not sure. sure. Yeah, yeah. I find it I find it interesting to try to like bring this back. How there's different projects or studies or research lines that kind of wound up in the same places potentially. Yeah, yeah right. But, but but some really have been implemented. Yeah. Um, well, and for example, pigeons flying in a helicopter. Pigeons have extraordinarily good vision, mm -hmm. and you can train them to detect, say, orange so that when they see any orange somewhere, they peck a key to signal it. And so they, they trained pigeons and such that, and they tested in people, let's say, lost at sea, who would be in an orange raft. And the way they tested is they went out on helicopter to try to find Steve. planted yeah. people, and they had the the... The, the person sitting next to the pilot and they had the pigeon mm -hmm. and I believe the pigeon was was better than the human at actually detecting people presumably lost it yeah uh, wow Alan Poling at Michigan mm -hmm. uh, is working with rodents in detecting landmines yeah yeah we actually talked about that on yeah. the podcast a little yeah we have yeah. mentioned yeah I mean, that's the hero terrific rats. work I mean yeah and these are and by the way I'm sorry but but these are using basic behavioral principles. I mean, the, you know, using animals is one thing for them, mm -hmm. but this is implementing basic behavioral reinforcement principles. Uh, so, it, so it follows from the behavioral approach. Yeah, so if we were to kind of bring this back together, you, my understanding is you've worked with rats, pigeons, and humans. Yes. Is there more, or is that kind of the oh, majority? Oh, well, we're collaborating with people on monkeys, uh, doing monkeys. I've done a bat study on, but not on behavioral economics, on taste aversion. Oh, like interesting. Testing out a theory. Oh, okay. Man, a long I have a lot of questions that. about that <laughs> for a later time, maybe. Yeah. So, so, yeah, and then I know also you talk about uh, approaches to understanding self-control, impulsivity, choice, mm -hmm. and such. So, our, I don't know where we want to go with this, but is there... Well, I think I, uh, sort of building off of the momentum you had in discussing the earlier research that you did, I, I was curious in, in hearing how some of the work that came that was done inside of behavioral economics as that was developing, um, how has that sort of um, impacted both economic theory as well as has that affected policy in, in a way that we could like really point to it and say this, this was um, Well, I mean, it's a question of whether you think we were effective or not, but for example, in, in psychology, we talk about, not just in psychology, but we talk about um, delayed outcomes lose value with time. And sure. probabilistic outcomes lose value as the odds against increase, as you're less likely to get it. And in economics, they had a standard sort of way of looking at that change in value, and it was um, an exponential function. Then you had people in psychology like George Ainsley and Jim Mazur who argued that it was hyperbolic. Um, okay, so um, uh, in math, a hyperbolic model is one where as the value of something decreases and approaches zero, it never quite hits zero, but as it goes on into infinity, it's, it's, it runs almost parallel to zero. Does that sort of make sense? So does it start up really high and then just drop down in a curve? Yes, typically, yeah. It starts really high, and then as it drops and it sort of makes a curve like on a graph, it will, it will go on... Um, presumably to infinity where it's always not quite at zero, but it's so close to zero that you know, it's kind of a, you can't even really necessarily tell the difference. Mm -hmm. And so for example, in this idea of like uh, the delay discounting stuff, um, it's like if the value of a hundred dollars, 10 years from now, a um, hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, it, it will not, it will not, um, it never actually reach zero, but it will be so close to zero that it may as well be zero, but it'll always be just a little bit above zero. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Jim Mazur didn't have a theoretical reason uh, for his equation, but it worked. He, it was sort of more of an empirical approach. Okay. Um, so the hyperbolic works better than the exponential, and they, they have different underlying assumptions, so it really does matter. It's, it's not just, you know, my equation's better than yours, but there's underlying rationale for it. Um, what's interesting, a lot of people in economics uh, argued against it for a long time. And I think now, even though it may be that all of economics hasn't come over, it's now standard practice in economics to talk about hyperbolic discounting as if they discovered it. <laughs> uh, but it was psychology that discovered it, or at least really pushed it a lot. Sure. Um, so, yeah. I, and so, you know, have we had an effect? Yeah, I, I think we've had a major effect there, um, theoretically. Uh, and there's even, um, I forget what's the name of it. One of my students just reminded me of it. There's a, a, an online thing that allows you to make commitments. Mm -hmm. Is it the stick.com? Stick, right. yep, yeah, stick contracts. Right. Ian Ayers wrote the book anyway. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, you know, the Racklin work from the 70s, the Racklin and Green paper from 1972 was entitled Commitment, Choice, and Self-Control in the Pigeon. I mean, that's where they did experimental work to demonstrate uh, the, the commitment approach in which you, you make a choice in advance so as to limit and restrict your future choice. Well, that's what stick is all about. Mm. And, and it's not to suggest that psychologists and, or Racklin and Green were the first in the history of the world to come up with commitment. I mean, sure. yeah. you know, Ulysses used a commitment strategy. Right, yeah. Though he didn't come up with it, by the way. Just <laughs> that wrong. It was told to him. And so how has, um, or, or has there been, has your understanding, I guess, of uh, human behavior and how that relates to, like, policy and government, has that been shaped by your research in this field? Uh, no, not really. I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> uh, what really is, I, um, I mean, as a scientist, I just get um, bothered by policies uh, being implemented that aren't based on science, that aren't based yeah. on data, that aren't based on testing it out uh, uh, accordingly, but are based um, either on personal preference, right? like I don't care what the data show, this is what I want, and we've seen that recently and more and more now, or, or just, you know, completely, so in one case it's either completely ignoring the data which says otherwise, mm -hmm. or saying I don't even care about the data, I just I just know what's true or know what's good, my good, and then I do that. I, I think there's a serious problem with that, which is, you know, you might, I, I mean, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt and say you're doing it for good reasons, um, but if it's wrong, you're wasting a lot of money and you're wasting a lot of lives in the long run uh, just because you would prefer it that way um, or because you don't like the data. I mean, that's not the way to save lives and increase the health of people. Sure. Um, from the, I guess what the next question I had was, is the research that you're doing currently, um, is that similar to stuff that you've done in the past or what, what are the big projects you're interested in oh, now? Well, it's... Big questions you want to answer. <laughs> Well, we're doing a lot of work on this discounting of reward value and okay. discounting of um, not just rewards, but also losses, so gains and losses, and looking at how the value of a reward decreases with delay to the reward, looking at the change in value of a loss as it's delayed. Um, and what we're finding now, which is really exciting, well, let me step back a second. One is we did, we did work on the discounting of delayed rewards, and we find this nice mathematical function, which is called the hyperboloid. 
mm-hmm. um, which nicely describes the change in value uh, of a reward with delay. And we found some interesting things about it and some things that were contrary to standard economic theory, uh, phenomenon called the amount effect, that larger delayed rewards are discounted less steeply than smaller delayed rewards. And it's a very robust finding. Well, then we said, okay, now let's look at probabilistic rewards. And sure enough, when you look at the discounting of probabilistic rewards, it follows the same hyperboloid function that delayed rewards follow, which is really cool. Same mathematical equation describes both. However, the we found that the amount effect was not the same. The amount effect was the opposite or the reverse from delayed rewards. So whereas delayed rewards, larger amounts are discounted less steeply, mm-hmm. with probabilistic rewards, larger amounts are discounted more steeply. So that raises issues underlying some behavioral biological phenomena as well as economic phenomena. But, but what it strongly argues is delay and probability are different. They, they have to have some fundamental differences. Uh, if the same variable amount affects them differently, then they have to be different because you can't convert one to the other because a variable that affects one affects the other one differently. So there's something different about that. So that was very exciting. More recently, we've moved into losses. I mean, a lot of things in life aren't rewards, they're losses. Um, And so we look at the discounting of delayed losses and the discounting of probabilistic losses. And again, we find the same hyperboloid function describes those phenomena, which is exciting. However, delayed and probabilistic losses are fundamentally different from delayed and probabilistic rewards. They're not just the opposite in sign, they are fundamentally different. So this is incredibly exciting. So we're finding these new phenomena. And now that we have a a good handle on how delayed rewards change with time, how probabilistic rewards change with time, how delayed losses change, how probabilistic losses change, now we can start combining them and you know what happens if you have a delayed and probabilistic reward which represents a lot of everyday life you know right it's not where you say okay i can have a delayed reward or i can have a probabilistic reward well frequently in everyday life a delayed reward is also probabilistic Sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, for example, you put money in a in the stock market. Well, it's going to pay off later, so it's delayed, but it's also probabilistic. You might earn more, you might earn less. So we're looking at how delay and probability combine. And, and I would argue you can't really do that until you know how they work simply sure. before you put them together. And now we're doing work where we have you can get an immediate gain but then there's a delayed loss or there's an immediate loss but then there's a delayed gain sort of you have to pay something now like an investment to get more later right so how do those combinations work and we're finding with the same mathematical framework we're able to describe all these changes so that's pretty cool sure and so just to rephrase, um, something you had said was that uh, it discounted less steeply for those larger amounts in the, mm-hmm. d- in the typical delay model. Uh, w- would another way to say that be that they retain their value when, with an increased delay more so than a smaller amount would? Yes. Okay. And the opposite if it's probabilistic. And what, can you say more about what probabilistic means? Oh, sure. I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, that, um, for example, you can have $1,000 with a 50% chance. Oh, I see. How much would you be willing to take for certain? Like, I mean, obviously, if I say you can have $1,000 with a 50% chance, or you can have $900 for certain, you'll probably take the certain. But if I were to say you can have $1,000 with a 50% chance, 
people will take less than the expected value for certain, referred to as being risk averse. Right. So you'll take less than the expected value for certain. But with losses, it's the opposite. You're more risk-seeking. So if you have to pay $1,000 with a 50% chance, um, you, you'll take that risk rather than having to pay, say, $500 right now, even though the expected value is the same. So we're risk-averse with gains. We're risk-loving with losses. I mean, that, that yeah. we've known, that, I, I mean, that's been known in economics for quite a while. Does, uh, does that hold across cultures? Like, what, uh, how does that work? Do you know? Well, that's an interesting question because um, there's limited, much, much more limited research across cultures. In, in anthropology, the, the expression is, and I, I won't know exactly what it stands for, yeah. is the weird population, the white, European, industrialized... R.D. I <laughs> forget what it is, but they talk about the weird population, and the question is: Do these standard economic theories and psychological theories hold up with non-Western cultures? Um, there's some work on economic games, different different economic games like the ultimatum game, the dictator game, yeah. um, where uh, the the results are quite different uh, in different cultures, depending upon their uh, economic um, bases. Um, that that, uh, for example, in the, the economic game. Let me give you the simplest. Uh, the the, okay. the dictator game. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Where the standard is, you're given say ten dollars, and you're told. Here's $10. You can give as much or as little as you want to this other person, to Abraham. Mm -hmm. And that's it. So you have $10. You can give him a dollar. You can give him, I think the minimum is 25 cents. Okay. Um, and normative economic theory, you would argue, should say you should give him the minimum, a quarter. Because mm -hmm. after all, he gets a quarter. So he's better off. Yeah. And you get nine seventy-five. But people don't do that. The, they give a couple of dollars. Um, in the ultimatum game, I give you $10, and I tell you you can give any part you want to Abraham. However, he has the option of rejecting your offer. If he rejects it, then neither of you get anything. Mm. And so, again, the prediction is, well, you should still give him the minimum because he's still better off because if he rejects it, he gets nothing. But people don't give the minimum. They give, or at least University of Michigan students, give <laughs> f about $4. That seems to be the modal amount given. Wow. Well, that seems to go against a, a, a theory of simple economic maximization. So then you have to bring in psychological principles such as um, fairness. Yeah. He's willing not to accept a dollar offer because he just doesn't think that's fair. And so he's willing to give up everything um, just out of issues of fairness. That's one explanation, say. Um, well, when this type of work is done in other cultures, you don't find necessarily the same results. You don't find the same $2 being given as in the dictator game or $4 mm -hmm. as in the ultimatum game. Different cultures actually give uh, different amounts. So there isn't necessarily a universal principle. So, yeah, if you could just tell us what what is economic theory? Um, where what would it predict, and also sort of where does it fall apart? Well, of course, there is no one thing called economic theory. I'm I mean, sure. I would like be like my saying, but what is psychological theory, and what would it predict? Well, very good analogy. But I mean, I would argue, of course, economics is a subset of psychology. Now, they, of course, wouldn't argue that. Uh, for years, they would argue economics is sort of the mother of all disciplines, and psychology just deals with that irrational, abnormal behavior. 
I would prefer to say that economics is sort of a subset of psychology. Economics, there's micro and macro. Microeconomics, the area that I do, um, is the allocation of behavior under a system of constraint. So when you think about the rat in the Skinner box pressing the lever, it's allocating behavior. Do I press the lever? Do I press the left lever? Do I press the right lever? Do I take a nap? Do I groom myself? Or do I press, if it's just a single lever, do I press or do I not press? So the rat is allocating its behavior under a system of constraint. It has a limited amount of time within which it could respond. Uh, it has a limited income because we fix the session. Um, it's limited resources. So I, I would argue the psychology that Skinner was studying was economic behavior in a way. Um, I, I don't, I mean, that's just to say that psychology is really the, the overarching discipline and economics is just a subset of it. Um, and one way to think of economics, and I think is, is a good way, is assume the, the basic underlying view that individual behavior is out to maximize utility. So we know that's wrong, and people don't maximize. But I would argue that's a really excellent theory to begin with, um, because if you begin with the assumption of maximization of utility, of course, the immediate problem is how do you define utility? And so right away you're into trouble. But, sure. but when the behavior doesn't maximize, that's where psychology comes into play because now you have to start investigating what are the variables that are influencing the behavior under what circumstances are controlling the behavior such that the behavior doesn't maximize utility. So it's not that, I, I would argue, it's not that economics is wrong. I think they have a brilliant theory that we know is not correct because there are all these other involvements, the motivational factors, the emotional factors, the psychological factors, and and when the behavior doesn't conform to the normative maximization model, that's the beginning of your science to now look at what are those variables and can we predict uh, when they're going to be involved and how they're going to influence the behavior. So to me, economics is giving us that, that theory that allows us then to look at the economic uh, to look at the psychological aspects that influence the behavior. Would you, do you think it would be fair to say in any way that economics and behavior economics, maybe more specifically, it is trying to describe what's happening and then that the psychology is looking, is trying to maybe answer the why it's happening? Uh, that's a tough one. Okay. Uh, um, for example, a, a theory like Kahneman and Tversky's uh, prospect theory. This is a theory that suggests that people value losses and gains differently in an emotional way, even when they are quantitatively exactly the same. So, for example, if given the opportunity of you could earn $50 now or you could earn $100, but you'll lose $50, even though the net outcome is exactly the same, people are more likely to choose receiving $50 now and avoiding that loss. I think one of the reasons it didn't go over big at first with economists was because it is a descriptive theory. Okay. And they don't want a descriptive theory. They want a proscriptive theory, an normative theory. And, and in fact, a lot of behavioral economics research, one could argue, is just examples, cute examples, when they're done well, very cute, very clever examples of people doing things that economists, even behavioral economists, um, say is weird. 
Now, <laughs> behavioral economists like that because then it shows how clever they are to show this. Um, I'm not necessarily impressed by that because we already know behavior is not simple. Um, so a, a, a lot of a criticism for behavioral economics would be that you're just demonstrating these violations. Maybe they're at the edge, they're at the boundary conditions. So what? I mean, what we're looking for are fundamental laws of behavior. And I think in its infancy, behavioral economics wasn't coming up with any fundamental laws other than, say, uh, prospect theory, which as a descriptive theory was very good. Um, but you have all these cute little demonstrations, but I'm not sure they're getting at some underlying fundamental importance other than demonstrating human behavior is fun. Um, I think now it, it's getting more mature and maybe we're trying to find some regularity. Again, I, I don't mean to keep coming back to the discounting, but, but here's the discounting and it's pointing out not an anomaly where in, in a way uh, some of discounting is an anomaly from normative theory. But it's regular, it's predictable, it's generalizable. And in that instance, then, I think it's fundamentally important. But now you can show, you can modify it and move it all over the place. And those are cute demonstrations. And, and those show how the emotional enters into it, the motivational, the historical, the economic. And all that's fine, but it's still based on this fundamental, say, function. So I think economics has a lot to tell us. I think psychology broadens what economics has to tell us. But it only broadens it when we stop just looking at cute little demonstrations and trying to get at more generalizable, uh, fundamental aspects of that behavior. I'm not sure I answered your question. No, I think it didn't. Uh, it and by the way, it's not where I didn't answer it because, you know, if I don't know the answer, I'll make up, some, you know, like a student says, I don't know the answer to your question, so I'll just answer something else. <laughs> I didn't mean it that way. No, no, because really I was just wondering, you know, at how to describe the sort of contribution or how those two relate to one another, because I've I typically looked at the quantitative models and they seem to me with um, because they require a under interpretation of the data only after all of the data have been collected right. that that seems that the only thing it can do then is describe what's already happened and although it does offer some level of prediction what would have to be the prescriptive or predictive next step is to understand what are the variables that we can directly manipulate that show this is how this changes and is shaped and uh and then fit that inside of that sort of cohesive theory but so I, I think you actually did answer the question but that that was sort of the motivation for taking the angle that but, i did but still a lot of what we have is is purely descriptive theory um and and whether or not it's predictive um, varies uh, so for example i um remember before i said we're we we're doing work where we're combining delay with probability. Well, one of the things we're looking at is if we run an individual on just pure delay discounting and we run them on pure probability discounting, what if now we give them rewards that are both delayed and probabilistic? The question we're asking is can we see what they do with a delayed reward and what they do with a probabilistic reward and can we use that to predict yeah, yeah. what they'll do with the delayed probabilistic cool. reward? Yeah. Yeah. And in yeah. that case, it is purely predictive, and there are no free parameters. Cool. Um, so, yeah, that's exciting. And, and is that research developing now? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and okay. we, we we presenting a multiplicative model that says um, you – you have delay discounting, and that gets multiplied by the probabilistic discounting. So you need all you need both parameters for delay discounting, both parameters for probability discounting. That that the two combine multiplicatively. There's another theory that says they combine additively, and we show that doesn't work. So. Oh well, there you go. That's what research is supposed to do, right? Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> and, oh, and I should add, when we did this study, it, it's not where we were. We knew how it would turn out. I mean, yeah. it really was a case of we really need to move to this type of situation and let's see what's going to happen. Yeah. Cool. Discovery. Yeah. It's beautiful. The data are gorgeous. Are <laughs> really nice. Um, well, I guess we've already actually been at this for a while. Yeah. We can sort of start to wrap it up. Um, and just say, uh, is there anything else you'd like to say? Um, you know, if you were, I guess, sort of talking to some Joe Schmo on the street and you kind of wanted to, to just say, share your love of this field with them, what, what are some sort of lasting words you might have? Wow. It's like asking if I have any words of wisdom. <laughs> that, that, is, that is actually what I'm asking. Yeah. <laughs> just said a little differently. Yeah. I mean, the, the big thing I push is... You know, at times you, you don't like the results, you don't like the findings, you may well wish it to be otherwise, um, but it's the science that's going to give us the answers that are going to improve people's lives. It's not preferences, you know, it's not opinion. I don't care what your opinion is if it's that the earth is flat, it isn't. <laughs> I don't care if your opinion is that, you know, the earth was crea created in six days and all the creatures unto the earth and, or, and that was 10,000 years ago. No, it's not. Um, <laughs> and, and I would argue it's not just a case of, well, science is just your belief system and something else is my belief system. It's not that simplistic. It's that science gives answers and makes predictions and can lead to modification. Where just something based on belief, if it's wrong, is not going to do that. If humans are having an effect on environmental climate change, it doesn't do us any good to say, no, they're not. I mean, the earth is in trouble. And the science is telling you that. Right. Um, so you've got to do research. You've got to support research, even if it's in areas you don't like. So to bring up a political thing. So <laughs> work was done with women who underwent abortion. And the people who were opposed to it were talking about how abortion is terrible for the woman. Well, the data don't show that. Right. And that's going to be hard to hear, but the point is that let's find out what's true because if we're going to help people, then we need to do that, which is going to make their lives better. I like it. Yeah. Um, I think we kind of, we tend to have sort of a similar message that where when we, we've covered a vast array of topics that we basically just pick anything. Well, in fact, it's why to a large extent I... I actually prefer the behavioral approach to other approaches. And okay. You know, it's, it's well-defined, it's predictive, as well as descriptive, mm -hmm. of course. But it, it's dealing with things that you can manipulate as opposed to just, you know, ephemeral, ineffable things like mind, this ineffable thing called mind, and how does the physical relate <laughs> to this mental ineffable in this case referring to the fact that the concept of mind is so ambiguous that it can't even really be described in words and this is less satisfying to someone like a behavior economist who is more interested and more satisfied by the amount of precision allowed by mathematical quantitative models that can really describe what exactly is going on and not necessarily just referring to some gigantic entity that is uh too abstract to be explained i mean i i just don't see that as being very helpful other than in personal discourse but not in actually leading people to engage in behavior that is better for them in the long run yeah i feel like i've i've been so into kind of scientific approaches of looking at why we do what we do that it seems very uh i guess like second nature first nature now to just kind of like look at the world that sort of way yeah however um i guess to the listeners just like stepping back and kind of thinking about this if it comes off of as a very different view right 
is kind of like is that's say that science sort of reduces the splendor of the world yeah because it takes away the mystery well and for for me i would argue that's that's patently ridiculous yeah (laughs) if i I see flowers growing and the 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 incredible shapes and differences in the colors and Mm -hmm. And and you have a view that some supernatural thing created it, and now I know scientific reasons for it. Does that actually diminish my pleasure of looking at those flowers? Yeah. Well, I think not. In fact, I think the pleasure is great. I think looking at a painting and understanding what goes into the painting, what goes into a piece of music, leads to greater appreciation not i don't think ignorance makes things more enjoyable yeah i think knowledge makes you see the wonders of the world all the more so yeah uh, the way i like to describe it is like when i started learning other people's approaches regardless of if i ended up subscribing to them or not or enjoying them or whatnot at least gave me more ways to look at things look at problems and that sort of stuff so at the very least today Hopefully what we have is a, another way to look at self-control, discounting, those choices, decision-making, and, and all that sort of stuff, right? It, well, I, yes, completely. And also one that's not in any way fundamentally different from all of the, 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 I guess, the principles and the descriptions that we've used up to this point. It's consistent to say that when we look at things scientifically, inside of biology or in physics or in astronomy or in chemistry or in psychology, all of them are looking for understanding the best way to systematically evaluate the variables and how they relate to the thing that they're curious about. Right. And they'll take different approaches and yeah. they'll have different levels of analysis. And, and one is not more important than another. One is not more fundamental than the other. They're all different ways of a- approaching yes and not going to necessarily mean that we're going to have a completely different understanding of psychology just because the particular angle one might be interested in is the biology biological level that will they'll contribute to it and that's very interesting and it will be systematic and therefore consistent um and at the same time uh, the other approach that we're taking here is that in the economic models um and with the um, the psychological approach is to just look at the exact same phenomenon, but ask us a, a different question about it. And I, I, th- I think to, to add on to that, I think you're right. And I, th- I think to add is one of the things about a behavioral approach that I think adds is that it's much more pragmatic. And I think that underlying pragmatism is also very Western, very American. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> that's a great but point. Also, I think that's what what makes the behavioral approach important also is it's it's pragmatic yeah no i, I completely how do we agree manipulate behavior how do we influence behavior how do we modify behavior how do we in, uh, raise people so that they'll more likely to engage in good behaviors appropriate behaviors uh, and i do official behaviors yeah and i think at the the heart of most psychology is the uh, motivation to um, help people to understand how sort of the world works in such a way that it can be useful. Um, and maybe not necessarily, as you said, in, with, in a clinic or a clinical setting, but uh, how do we understand this in terms of how does this affect the policies that we make in our government and how does this affect the choices that we make as parents? Right, and, and I realize I'm repeating myself, but the reason you need to do the basic science is so that you can implement these things that are effective and work. If you don't use the science, then you're going to be implementing things which are hit or miss, might even be detrimental, and in fact will be far more expensive. Well, you know, we actually have an upcoming episode that I, I, I'm now wishing that we'd already had planned to have you a part of where I want to discuss exactly what it is we can learn from an animal model and doing sort of the basic research sort of stuff because there are it, it is different and I have read some of the criticisms of it and I also have a deep appreciation for basic science. I just love it. And I think that it's worth exploring why there is, there is utility there and just making that, I guess, well understood and also then looking at um, where do where do we take this and how do we use it? Mm-hmm. And uh, and sort of to piggyback on something that you just said a moment ago, I was telling you I have to use that that Myers book. He actually has this wonderful quote that we've already used, but I'm going to say it anyway. In his book, where he says, "What's true for any of us, or what's true for all of us, can be glimpsed in any of us," and that's the that's a nice line. 
yeah, the, the basic model allows us to see what's true for all of us that we can now look for in any of us. So I, I, there's, I hope I get this quotation right from Feynman on, um, on why we do science. And he said something to the effect of, science is a lot like sex. <laughs> we do it because it feels good. And sometimes something good comes from it. <laughs> <laughs> but again, it's at this different level, the, the immediate or the long delayed. Yeah. That's such a wonderful place to wrap up, actually. <laughs> yeah, I like that. All right, Len, I can't thank you enough for being oh. on here with us and talking with us for as long as you were and, uh, and for everything we were able to capture. Well, thank you. All right, well, I think um, I, uh, we can go ahead and close this up then. Yeah. Well, thanks again, uh, Dr. Len Green. And this is Abraham. And this is Ryan O. All right, signing off. We are out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by ABAI's Disseminating Behavior Analysis Special Interest Group and our amazing listeners. If you like what you heard, consider heading to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash podcast. Anything helps and we are continuously lining up perks and merch for our supporters. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is Abraham, Ryan O, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brussier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Brendan Bohr does our episode art. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.